Hello, and welcome to Partially Redacted, a podcast where we discuss privacy and security engineering related topics. I'm your host, Sean Faulkner. Today, I'm joined by Manny Silva, head of documentation at Skyflow. And we'll be talking about building a private GPT to enhance and amplify company productivity. Manny, welcome to the show. Hey, Sean, thanks for having me. Yes, it's great to have you here. You know, actually, I was thinking about this before we uh, started this recording is we've actually been working together now for over half a decade. Uh, first at Google, now at Skyflow. Can you believe that? Uh, half a decade. I'm not going to think about just how long that is. But yeah, <laughs> it's been an adventure. That's for certain. Yes, lots of different products, lots of different challenges along the way. So um, maybe we can have you first introduce yourself for those that are you know, haven't worked with you for such a long time. Who are you? What do you do? And how'd you get here? Sure. So I'm Manny Silva. Uh, as Sean, as you said, head of documentation at Skyflow. I've been a technical writer for over a decade, and I do a bit of engineering as well. So a tad bit more multifaceted than many technical writers that you'll come across. I came to technical writing because it was a way to merge my interests in technology and, and my skill in English. Uh, as well as giving me the ability to tinker. Uh, and that's really what I see myself as first and foremost. I'm a tinkerer. I run a server out of my garage or a server rack out of my garage. I experiment with as many shiny baubles as I can get my hands on. Uh, it's what drives me. Yeah, it's awesome. And, you know, I think our conversation today, we're going to be kind of focusing on some of the things that you're later you know, tinkering with is uh, around GPT, which uh, is a well-timed conversation. You know, I just published an article to Snowflake's blog today, as, at least the, the day of this recording, about privacy-first AI, leveraging both Snowflake and Skyflow to fine-tune GPT models. And I'm actually at the Snowflake Summit right now, uh, recording this from my hotel room. I left the conference to, to come back here and do this. So, uh, you know, you feel should feel privileged, Manny. And then, oh, I do. <laughs> the conference hasn't even officially started yet. It starts in a couple of hours, but all anyone can talk about in the hallways there, every conversation I've had has pretty much been about large language models, GPT, generative AI. So it's a crazy and exciting time right now. You know, just kind of stepping back for a second, you know, what do you think about all this, you know, craziness and, and sort of, you know, hype cycle that's happening around, you know, large language models and GPT right now? From my perspective, particularly, you know, from this part of me that is a writer, I think it's warranted. Um, taking a step back even further from LLM specifically, but talking about image generative AI, I got involved when Stable Diffusion hit the scene last year, and it absolutely blew my mind. It was unlike anything that I had ever experienced before. The the degree of complexity and freedom that you could not not just tinker with, but that you could create using a different medium than you had been able to use previously. Um, so I really dove deep into that. And then when I obviously LLMs were around, ChatGPT was already released, uh, the first version of it at least before Stable Diffusion came out. Um, but I have, I dove into LLMs uh, a little bit before the GPT-4 announcement, and I've been waiting in them since. Um, it, it, they're incredibly powerful and like any powerful tool, there are concerns around them, but also opportunities. 
Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, so you talked about getting first interested in, in stable diffusion uh, a year ago, sort of, you know, starting to get interested in the space of generative AI. You know, it's crazy to think about, but a year ago in the space, you're now like an old timer uh, at this point. Like most people <laughs> had never Just heard of that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm older than you, so. But um, uh, no, most people hadn't heard of a vector database until like two months ago. And now, you know, there's, there's many people are sort of, you know, di diving deep in here and trying to catch up and learn the space. So, you know, it, it, it's, uh, it's great that it, I guess like the rest of the world is now caught up to an interest that you started for you over a year ago. And it's been interesting following the discourse. Um, I mean, both online, but also in person at uh, conferences that I've been going to people. It's the same as what you've already experienced at the Snowflake Summit. It's like AI, what's going on with AI? What are the newest things that are going on? And it's always fun to find the people who are as into it as I am uh, there. But, you know, also nice to see all of the interest from so many other people and be able to help educate them. I want to share the information. I want to share my discoveries from my tinkering. I don't want to hoard it to myself. Mm -hmm. So what was your impression when you first saw ChatGPT? I, th I mean, I think that there was a whole spectrum of impressions. There's people who, you know, were losing their mind around this. And then I think uh, for me, I, I was actually on the other end of the spectrum when I first saw it, where I was like, oh, you know, we saw this. 15 years ago with Microsoft Alice or whatever it was called. And there's been sort of other iterations of these sort of chatbot AI systems along the way. And I, I've, you know, swung the other direction now of, you know, really being not only interested, but believing that this is a truly sort of a paradigm shift in the way that we're interacting with, with um, uh, technology. But what was your sort of first impression with that? My first impression was a bit hesitant. Not, it, it, I won't call it lukewarm, but I was curious i felt that something was a little bit different about this but i couldn't put my finger on quite why and that's part of why i didn't get into llms uh as quickly as i might have and i flipped to stable diffusion first because for me that was real that was uh that was tangible it was something different than what i had experienced before but then as i mentioned i i code as well and so i decided to try out github copilot and that's what really changed it for me, uh, because I had messed with ChatGPT and similar to what you had said, I had seen things like it before. Um, but with Copilot, I was able to author functions just by following along with autocomplete after I gave it a descriptive enough uh, prompt. And it, it was a magic moment for me. There are, I can count on one hand, the kinds of moments I've had like that with technology in my life. And it just blew my mind. And then I realized, wait, this is powered by the same stuff that ChatGPT is. I need to dig into this more. And then, and since then, looking at all of the tools that have popped up around it, all of the infrastructure that's being built around it, things like Langchain, uh, one of the most commonly known tools, the things that are capable, that these tools are capable of doing and creating are absolutely incredible. So I am 100% in the thick of it as much as I can be. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, you spoke about this magic moment with uh, Copilot. And I think that is key for a lot of people who are, uh, to kind of like, you know, unlock that key in their mind is when they're able to take something that they're either trying to accomplish or maybe it's a task that they've done previously 
but then they can speed up the execution of it using like one of these approaches. That is like the magic moment. And when people see that, I think that is really the key to them. Like, oh, wow, this is like way more powerful than maybe they first saw. Because, you know, I was trying to show my dad a little bit about ChatGPT and I was telling him, you know, it's amazing stuff like that. And he's like entering something. He's like, well, you know, how is this different than doing like a Google search? Because the types of queries he's running against it is not that different than, you know, what Google's going to come back with, with, a, you know, Wikipedia article or something. But it's when you can do something that is tangibly different that you realize like, okay, this isn't something that like, you know, Google's gonna provide or some other tool that I've used in the past is going to provide to allow me to do something so much faster than maybe I was capable of before. That's the, the light bulb moment for people. Agreed, 100%. And that light bulb moment is part of what I am trying to deliver internally at Skyflow, some of the stuff that I've built. Um, so, I mean, I write a lot of documentation, but there are other people who create content as well. And so one of the things that I've built with our internal tooling is the ability to rapidly iterate with generating drafts of new content based on sensitive internal documents in a very safe and private way so that I can take whatever planning documents, for example, uh, and say, hey, using the content that's already in here, I want to generate a draft of a piece of documentation, or I want to generate XYZ content type based on template that I've already defined. And it works. And I've been able to generate baseline content that might take me a day and a half, two and a half days, in five minutes uh, using our internal GPT solution. Yeah, and I think... You know, I, I definitely want to dive into what you've built, uh, but I, I, I do want to, uh, before we get there, talk a little bit about some of the things around, you know, maybe the common misconceptions or things around privacy and security related to GPT. But one of the things I, I wanted to stop down on there was, I think you leveraging these tools is a great example of the, essentially using these tools to be you know, better at your job. Like there's, of course, a lot of concern whenever there's some sort of new AI momentum that all oh, these are gonna, you know, take away jobs, there's gonna replace jobs. Like we're not gonna need content writers anymore. We're not gonna need copywriters anymore or whatever it is, right? But um, uh, by actually leveraging the tools, you can actually not only keep your job, but you're scaling well beyond your means and you're able to do things maybe five to 10X faster than you know was previously possible. So it's a lot more about like leveraging the technology than the technology essentially replacing a human. Exactly. Absolutely nothing that I have been able to generate, whether it be code or text or image, what have you, has been, uh, that I've been able to generate for any of these tools has been publishable immediately. It all requires someone who knows what they're doing to polish it, to get it to a standard of quality that I would consider publishable. Um, and I see these tools, LLMs particularly as pertains to writers, as a similar sort of situation that graphic designers had when Photoshop first came out. You know, it's it challenged them. It was a new tool. It was a new uh, application that they had to learn. Uh, and it completely transformed their job. But the job is still around. Um, and I see writers facing something similar. As far as completely eliminating jobs, 
to be perfectly frank, the people who are already going to eliminate tech writer jobs have done so. Uh, and I don't see this as dramatically changing the landscape beyond what we are currently at. Yeah, I mean, with every like level of automation, there's always some sort of you know resistance to the old guard. Like even in the old days when you had to pay a bunch of people to essentially you know install your database software and run all the infrastructure and have a bunch of people to kind of just be like tuning it and looking at it all the time as new automation tools came online a lot of those people were concerned like hey like you're like you know taking this job away from me essentially by automating all this, this is like where uh, i'm delivering value to the company but people you know they figure it out and it's not like jobs in the database market have gone away just like you know writing jobs are not necessarily going to go away so You've been, you know, you know, tinkering and working in the space, you know, on the side, and now a little bit at Skyflow for, you know, over a year. What are some of the sort of common misconceptions that you've seen with new people sort of entering this world, and in particular when we're talking about things around like privacy and security? So I've seen misconceptions, particularly in pri around privacy and security, swing both directions. That on one extreme. Everything's secure. I don't need to worry about anything. This is a, sure, it's a black box, but it's a box. Everything stays in the box and I don't need to worry about it. Um, the other extreme being, I'm going to, I'm very paranoid. I'm going, like anything that I put in here could go out to absolutely everybody. And so I don't want to put absolutely anything in. Unfortunately, we're actually closer to the second one than the first uh, because of how many of these models are trained, uh, specifically ChatGPT, when you're using it on the web, any and all content that you put in is used in the future for, as training data. And that doesn't necessarily mean that someone's going to be able to reproduce your inputs one for one, but when OpenAI trains a new version of the model, then it's going to be able to infer information based on what you would input. So yeah, in a sense, it is going to be able to output that information again. But a third misunderstanding is that there's nothing that you can do about it. And there are things that you can do about it. You can keep your data from being used as training data. You can, whether that's absolutely everything in your prompts, whether that is uh, specific pieces of sensitive or critical data that you've identified beforehand. Um, the difficulty is that this middle ground solution of having your cake and eating it too is difficult. And so very few people do it. I, it's either difficult because it requires engineering, uh, engineering skill or it requires the hardware to run it that not many people have. So you mentioned a couple of things around, you know, prompting and training. Can you maybe give people who are not maybe that familiar with how GPT systems work? How does data end up getting shared with GPT? Like how does something like sensitive information end up? What are the like places that could enter essentially one of these GPT models? Sure. So when you interact with one of these LLMs, LLM standing for large language model, um, you give it a prompt, an input. Uh, and this could include a question or an instruction 
for the LLM to perform, as well as any contextual information that you want to have it consider, whether that's a snippet of text that you want it to adapt or summarize or rewrite or whatever. This prompt gets sent to the LLM. And the LLM is essentially a analytical answer creation machine or answer approximation machine is actually a better way of describing it because it takes those inputs, it looks at all the words that you gave it and the order that you supplied them in. And then it compares, it, it uh, creates vector relationships, just uh, numerical representations of the ordering of the words and their relations to each other. And then it compares those numbers to a gigantic set of numbers that it has in its own vector database internally. And then it strings together a response by identifying the most probable order of words that would be a response to your prompt. It doesn't think, it doesn't consider, it strings together the most probable order, which is how you sometimes get false information called hallucinations. But generally, it comes up with a reasonable sounding response um, that answers your question or satisfies your request. Now, what happens to that prompt that you input in the first place? In many cases, absolutely nothing. If you are using a tool that you're running on your own hardware, for example, then nothing happens to it. But with OpenAI and ChatGPT very specifically, uh, their terms of service state that any prompt that gets input, they can take and they can use as training data. So they get a question answer pair, which is your prompt as the question and uh, ChatGPT's response as the answer. And they can take that information to then turn around and use to train the next version of ChatGPT. So when the next version of ChatGPT comes out, there's the possibility that your prompt is included as part of that gigantic database that it can pull uh, inference from when someone else asks a related question. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So if I go and copy essentially, you know, an internal document, let's say, uh, I don't know, a contract with another company or something like that and tell ChatGPT, can you summarize this for me and let me know the action items? that I should uh, follow up on, then technically that document now is in somewhere, the you know, the chat GPT system and could technically be used later for some future iteration and training set. Is that right? Yes. And the difficult part or the hardest part for many people to wrap their minds around is that this is a one way process that when training of a model happens, everything is numbers everything it's not like the literal text of that document would be in the model it's not it's just those the vector relationships of the position in text from one word to the next those relationships are what is in the model not the actual text of the content however if a prompt is constructed in such a way that very very closely relates yours then the model might think hey the most probable sequence of strings to output is going to be very similar to that legal document that someone else had prompted before. So it's possible 
not probable, but possible for a model to output text that is very similar to a previously input prompt. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, you know, as another example, if I, you know, shared some sort of document that, you know, captured my patient record or, you know, my records, my, my sort of healthcare records or something like that, and said, like, explain this to me, then, you know, now my, some sensitive information in terms of my healthcare records might be part of that and could technically be leaked in some, you know, later fashion. And there's not really a way to kind of unroll that or, you know, remove that sharing once that's happened, because as you mentioned, it's not like the words are there or any association with me. It's just these numeric vector relationships. So it's not the same as the old paradigm of data where we can go and find the record and essentially delete the row in the database or delete the file from the file system. That's not really how these models work. No, absolutely not. And you might come across people that say, okay, we'll go back and remove this bit of data and retrain the model. Well, that's not reasonable. Training a new version of a model takes thousands upon thousands of hours of compute time. So going back to remove uh, you know, somebody's name, for example, from a particular document, even if they could, even if they retained the source with of the training materials, which they don't, um, it would cost them so much money that it would be 100% infeasible for them to do it, mm -hmm. let alone the time constraints and the giant corpus that they're training from. Mm -hmm. So what's it mean to say, like create a private GPT and, and I'm assuming that the, the reasoning behind wanting to do that is to help, you know, address some of these problems, right? The impetus behind creating a private GPT is so that you can use sensitive documents or documents that contain sensitive data I, with large language models, um, much like I mentioned I'm doing internally at Skyflow. Uh, and there's so much business use uh, reason for this, because if you do need to summarize, say, a patient, a patient's medical rec, uh, medical information, or even if, hey, we're building a new feature, and here are some planning documents, so we don't want these to be public ever, these particular documents, but still, I would like to be able to use it to draft some new content. You can't do that with ChatGPT, but when you're building your own private solution, uh, then you can depending on how you architect it, leverage different kinds of sensitive data uh, so that you can do whatever you want. The balance is which system or which LLMs are you using? What are the terms of, and conditions of those LLMs? And what sort of hardware are you running on? And there's a whole myriad of possibility based on those answers. Mm -hmm. So someone, you know, if an organization wants to do this, how do they go about I guess like implementing one of these systems and integrating that you know private GPT into you know their existing workflows and systems and maybe you know where they're storing files and so forth. There are a few different options. If you're looking for something that just summarizes documents and does a decent job of it, that you can ask questions about a particular document that you upload, there's an excellent uh, tool out there called GPT for all, and it's there to solve just that problem. It even runs locally on your hardware. Might not run fast, might not, you know, give you the best uh, quality responses, but it can answer questions on documents. But if you're looking for something that can actually articulate itself well, that can take this private content and use it however you like it to, 
then you need to first identify what sorts of documents you want to use. You have to identify what you are comfortable with living on someone else's servers for any length of time, and that'll narrow down what sort of LLMs you have available to you. So for example, if you're okay with um, any sort of data being you living on someone else's servers for auditing purposes, then OpenAI's APIs are available because those APIs do not take prompt data to use as training by default. You have to opt in rather than opt out. Um, the problem with that is that you don't get all the niceties of the ChatGPT uh, front end. So you still have to go and build your entire user interface. Uh, you just get access to their models. and But all of your prompts do live in their audit logs so that they can uh, make sure that their platform isn't being abused. And that might be okay for certain kinds of documents, but it definitely wouldn't fly for something like a medical record number. For something along those lines, you'd have to make sure that you, or you have to go and research what other LLMs are out there, like Falcon, like Llama, like, um, uh, there, there are a variety of them. Hugging Face, which is, a go-to place for AI, it's like the GitHub for AI, uh, has an amazing uh, LLM leaderboard uh, that has the most up-to-date models that are there uh, and how they compare against each other. But to run many of those models, you then have to turn around and have your own hardware. Uh, so, And you have to have hardware that's beefy enough, that has a good enough uh, GPU to run these intensive processes in a timely manner. So it's a balance of how high quality output do you want? What content are you comfortable with having on somebody else's servers? If you're not comfortable with your content being on anyone else's servers, then you have to roll your own and that has a significant engineering lift. Hey there, Sean here. I hope you're enjoying this episode of Partially Redacted. If so, please subscribe so you can always check out the latest episode and help others find the show by leaving a rating and review. Final thing before I get you back to the interview. If you're interested in privacy and security, have a challenge or issue you want to discuss, or want to share your expertise, please join the Partially Redacted community at skyflow.com slash community. All right, now back to the show. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're essentially getting to a place where you're it's like you're running your own data center rather than relying on you know public cloud services in exactly. order to, to run truly run uh, these you know in private GPT instances at the you know the highest level of quality or something like that. That's exactly what we're dealing with here. What are some of the you know best practices and strategies for for training and fine tuning a private GPT to help ensure some of the you know or reduce some of the challenges around performance and perhaps accuracy? I mean, my biggest concern around fine-tuning is what we touched on earlier. You have to clean your training data before you do anything else. Whether you're doing fine-tuning or you're providing documents to uh, through like a search mechanism to the LLM programmatically, it's garbage in, garbage out. So you have to make sure that all of your training data, all of the contextual documents that you're feeding it are in a format that it understands. Now, there are a few tools out there like Langchain and Llama Index that 
are called doc, they are document loaders. Uh, Langchain does much more beyond just that, but I'm going to focus on the document loader portion of it, where essentially you say, hey, here's a file. I want to load it to be able to contextually pull information from it. And in short, they're great to get up and running because they take the document, they create vectors of it, they store it in a vector database. That way you can run searches against it. The difficult part is that they lose a lot of context. They lose a lot of why, like they'll break down the document into a whole bunch of itty bitty strings, but you might get a single sentence out of an eight sentence paragraph that doesn't make a lot of sense on its own. So from an engineering perspective, it might make more sense to go in and write your own alternative. But beyond even just that kind of formatting cleanup to make sure you maintain context, if you have any sort of sensitive data in your documents, especially if you're going to do this for use it for fine tuning, you have to clean it up first because we get into the exact same problem we talked about earlier with OpenAI and ChatGPT. If you use any sort of sensitive data in your training, that's getting baked into your model and you can't take it out again. So you have to make sure that you clean out all of the identifiers, all of the uh, you know emails, names, uh, IDs, whatever, uh, so that it never makes it into your training corpus to begin with. And if you already have a training corpus, then you really got to make sure that you clean it out before it gets into your model. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and uh, just to, you know, I guess give a a bit of a plug to uh, Skyflow at this point, since you're talking about this, is uh, uh, we did recently release a product called uh, Skyflow GPT Privacy Vault, which essentially addresses specifically this problem, or was designed to address this problem of how do you you know clean up the training data, whether that's from prompts or you know model training, fine tuning, and so forth, before it essentially ever touches the GPT system or you know whatever sort of large language model you might be using. Can you, um, maybe we could talk a little bit about some of the stuff that you built at Skyflow that leverages this idea around private GPT. What, you know, tools did you use? What were some of the goals around the project? And, you know, how does all this stuff work together? Sure. So bear with me as I verbally describe a relationship graph. Um, at the earliest stages, we have what amounts to an ETL system. Um, you have your training corpus and you transform it into whatever format your document loaders want. Um, so for me particularly, most of my content is in Markdown or I can easily get it into Markdown. And so I uh, wrote my own Markdown parser to chunk it in such a way that my document loader can maintain context as much as is possible uh, of all of that content. So I've taken my training corpus, I've gotten it into a format that I'm ready to train with. Um, I then create vectors of it. And I use Chroma, which is an open source vector database, but there are amazing hosted database vector databases as well, like Pinecone is probably the best uh, most well-known one at the moment. Um, and those will take your documents and create embeddings is what they're called. Create embeddings to uh, store in the vector database. So it transforms your text into numbers 
Um, oh, there are a couple of tools that do the actual transformation, whether that's OpenAI's ADA model, which is an embeddings model, or uh, Hugging Face Sentence Transformers is the most popular open source option out there. But you take those embeddings, store them in the vector database. So now you have a whole bunch of numbers and associated text that are stored in your vector database. You can, and that kind of sits off to the side waiting in the wings. Now, the next portion of all of this is what I think of as the orchestration layer. Um, what I mean by that is what tooling are you using to actually manage the flow of your interaction with the LLMs. The most popular methods right now, uh, and so this is probably gonna sound very dated in here, but the most popular methods right now for orchestrating interactions with LLMs are either DIY Python, which I don't necessarily recommend, uh, or LangChain. Obviously there are others, but those are the two most popular. Um, in a nutshell, what LangChain does is it provides a wrapper around a whole bunch of LLMs. And it lets you specify it lets you specify different components of the interaction. Like you can specify, hey, this is how I want to store my conversation history and pass it back to the LLM whenever it's reasonable. This is how I want to pull content from my vector store. Uh, to be able to reference my uploaded up quote uploaded documents. Um, this is how I want to interact with the LLM, like specifying timeouts or uh, there are so many options. But the biggest part of LangChain and one of the hardest parts for new users to wrap their head around is the chain part of it, because it's not just a wrapper around an API call. You can create chains of calls that uh, run usually sequentially uh, to achieve all sorts of different results. One of the really powerful ones that I've used is to create a self-critiquing chain. So, for example, if I send in a prompt that says, hey, what? how do I make an API call in a particular language. Then the LLM responds with, oh, hey, if you want to make this API call in this specified language, let's just say PHP, uh, here's how you do it. And it returns some nice looking PHP code. Well, it becomes problematic if there isn't a PHP SDK. And so a self-critiquing chain can evaluate that initial response and say, hey, I have a rule that there isn't a PHP, that there are only SDKs in set languages. Does this refer to something that doesn't exist? Like, is this a hallucination? And if so, respond back to the LLM and say, hey, this isn't right for this reason, try again. And then it the LLM responds back again, and it's a back and forth within the tool itself until the tool identifies that it has an appropriate output based on the rules that you've established. And there are so many of these different kinds of chains. Self-critiquing is just one of them, but this is what makes LangChain so powerful. Uh, it can in 
Langchain can interact with various different APIs. It has all sorts of what are called tools available uh, that gives your application capabilities beyond just calling the LLM itself. Um, now, that is the orchestration layer. Um, moving beyond that, you have things like logs and uh there are a few different tools for that like weights and measures and prompt layer and i think helicone is another one uh y labs just came out with Langkit. uh there are many many different options this is a very new space within the new space uh of llms but then you also have to identify okay what's your what's your interaction layer going to be what's your interface uh, and so two of the more popular options that I've seen recently are Gradio, which is what I'm using. It's a prototyping front end, uh, but it's designed for rapid iteration. It works great for that. Then we've also got Streamlit, which is another one that's out there that has seen that has a lot of polish out of the box. And so it's very popular for that. Um, there are so many more tools that I could go into. That is just the tip of the iceberg. Uh, but those are some of the most important ones. Now, one thing that I'll note, and I mentioned this briefly earlier, but it bears mentioning again, is your choice of LLM. Because you can use OpenAI's models, and there are a variety of them. It's chat GPT is just the interface. We've got GPT-4, GPT-3.5 Turbo, which is what most people think of as chat GPT. But then there are also the GPT-3 models like DaVinci, which are very powerful in their own right. Um, and what makes those particularly interesting is that you can fine tune them. You can't fine tune the chat models. Uh, what fine tuning lets you do is take that training corpus that we used earlier. Uh, typically, it has to be formatted as question answer pairs. Uh, but then you can customize your model based on your information. Now, there are there's a distinction that needs to be made between fine tuning and using embeddings. Fine tuning is creating a new version of your model that has inferential knowledge, meaning it's already baked into the model. It can't say, hey, this string was pulled from this page, but it inherently knows information that you fed it. Uh, embeddings are documents that you keep in your vector store that if you're using Langchain like I am, uh, your prompt says, hey, how do I, to use a very Skyflow example, uh, how do I create a connection? Uh, or even more specifically, how do I create a connection to you know X partner? Um, and then I can go to my LangChain, can go to my vector store, pass in that prompt as the search query, return very specific text, even with sources attached to it, so that it can use that explicit knowledge or external knowledge to inform the answer. Um, there are pros and cons to each. You can only pass so much context in with a single prompt. So you are very limited 
when it comes to how many search results you can get from your vector store for a given prompt, whereas, but it's very cheap. Uh, whereas fine tuning, like we discussed earlier, is very expensive. Uh, and it, but the, mo the model can only infer information that it already has. But the other downside is that, again, data, uh, sensitive data that's baked into the model is baked into the model. If there's sensitive data in embeddings, it's much easier to go back into your embeddings and identify, okay, where's this bit of sensitive data, remove it from the training set, regenerate the embeddings. It's you know still not cheap. It's not uh, quick, but it's much more doable than retraining a model. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And in the article that I mentioned earlier, I'll include it in the show notes as well, that I wrote for the Snowflake blog, it talks about the fine-tuning version of this and also how do you, you leverage Skyflow in this case to essentially make sure that the sensitive data doesn't end up in the in the uh, fine-tuning prompts and completions that you're, you're giving to modify the model. Um, so in terms of people who are looking, or sorry, in terms of people leveraging what you built at Skyflow. You know, mm -hmm. what is some of the like use cases that you are supporting through this? And what is some of the impact that you're seeing either on your own workflow or other people within Skyflow? Sure. So internally right now, uh, we have the ability to chat against our documentation and blog posts and white papers. Um, we and that ability to chat in and of itself is interesting, but it's not the biggest productivity boost that we've seen so far. The biggest boost is really in drafting, creating first drafts of new content based on existing content. And so I personally have been able to generate rough drafts of new guides that I want to create very rapidly by supplying uh, planning documents, like I mentioned earlier, but also other materials that are already out there. I've been able to feed in readmes and say, hey, read me, let's uh, reformat it or let's uh, like with this knowledge, how do I go about doing X, Y, Z? Or let's with this knowledge, let's create a how to guide that does this. Um, and that sort of I, that sort of task would normally take two, three times longer than I've been able to do since I've spun up our internal tooling. And it's beyond just me. Uh, marketing has been able to make use of it for, you know, contextually creating uh, social media posts from blog posts as a source. Uh, we've been able to generate drafts of various different posts from those same internal planning documents that I was using. Um, and across the board, it's as simple as, oh, hey, generate, uh, especially for the shorter form stuff, it's, okay, generate, okay, that's not looking quite how I want it. I can either take that because it's got a good base and I can do it myself, or if I want to do it in bulk, then let me tweak the audience, the target audience a little bit. Let me tweak the subject matter a little bit. Let me, uh, you know, do a little bit of prompt engineering uh, to uh, change how the LLM approaches the task of generating this content and then spit out 10, 15, 20 more versions of this. Uh, so it's very 
very greatly increase uh, uh, not just my productivity, but most content creators' productivity across the board. And being able to create a draft of a new document is, as I, I say, it's simple. It's not simple, but it's uh, all it takes is creating a valid template that you want the LLM to follow. And then it simply uses the input as knowledge so whatever documents you feed it as knowledge and then it spits out to varying degrees of quality based on your template a document that matches your template mm -hmm. yeah i mean i think that you know one of the key things that even beyond what you built but th some of these systems create or, or one of the problems that solves for people is sort of the uh you know the blank page problem and yes as you mentioned earlier it's not necessarily that it's going to produce something that's perfect that doesn't need a little bit of you know massaging, but it's much easier to do copy editing and rewrites generally than to come up with something completely from scratch yourself. Oh, and an example that I have for that uh, is you know uh, our normal documentation process involves working with product managers to you know. Uh, the technical writer will come up with an outline of the things that need to change and, you know, all of the source content and that sort of thing. And we work in collaboration with the lead engineers and the product managers to draft that initial version of it. Uh, but that's usually pretty laborious because of the blank page problem. Uh, but with this tool, I've we've seen in a number of cases already for new feature documentation that, hey, in addition to this outline of things that need to change, here's an automated first draft. You update this uh, for your part of things and hand it back to us. And we've seen turnaround times five, 10 times faster than normal. It's greatly accelerated this project, uh, all of the projects that we've used it on. Uh, and yes, I most certainly plan to continue using it moving forward. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, looking ahead, what advancements or trends can do you think we can expect in the field of you know, private GPTs and how will they maybe continue to transform the way we work with documentation, product launches and marketing and maybe even beyond that? In the short and midterms, I see more of the same. There's going to be steps forward with the current development, the developments of being able to run these things on more and more efficient hardware um, so that, you know, there are already some models that can run locally on the laptop. They're not great, but they'll run. Um, there are so many gains in efficiency that have that we've yet to see. Um, there's also going to be gains in capability. Um, there, the models are going to be much better equipped to handle a wide variety of tasks. Uh, some of the biggest models, like the ChatGPT models, are already very good at that. But the open source models in particular are struggling in that regard. Um, one of the, to me, most interesting developments that, we're, that we've already started to see the beginnings of is the development of agency. And what I mean by that is if you look at projects like uh, AutoGPT or Baby AGI or GPT Engineer, they give the orchestration layer the ability to summarize the task that's been given to them and then utilize the tools that are made available to them to take actions to best satisfy the request. So it adds a layer of abstraction 
Uh, so that instead of you querying the LLM directly, you're querying the LLM that then queries itself. Um, and I think that space is very new. That space is going to see a lot of development in the medium and long term. And as far as private information, is concerned we're going to see i mean we already see a tremendous amount of interest and concern around people's data in models and that's not going away we're going to see more of it if anything yeah absolutely and i know uh you know a number of countries have started sort of you know investigations into these technologies to figure out you know how do we regulate this what should be the the rules of engagement what should companies do in terms of you know protecting what customer information or their own information and so forth and i think that's like you said it's not something that's going to go away it's something that's going to be more and more in the zeitgeist as we move along with these uh innovations and i mean to that end that you put out some ai guidelines ai usage and behavior guidelines and they're very calm i mean they, they could be even stricter in some regards but um Stanford did an analysis of all of the most popular models out there, including ChatGPT, and not a single one of them passes all of the guidelines. There is a lot of work to be done to make sure that these tools are safe to use and that the content that they consume for training and usage is safe for them to do so with. Absolutely. And I think that's a good place to, to leave it. Uh, Manny, I, I want to thank you so much for joining us and talking through all, you know, a lot of your background in terms of how you got interested in the space. And you've been able to, I think, really demonstrate not only how much there is to learn in the space and all the, the tools and development, but also some of the opportunities, uh, especially as companies start to look at how can we leverage these technologies to improve the efficiency of our workforce while doing it in a way that uh, isn't going to necessarily leak, you know, sensitive information or sensitive company information to these, uh, um, you know, various locations. We don't want our employees sharing internal code and kernel documentation, but at the same time, they're going to continue to leverage these technologies. So how can we give them tooling that allows them to take advantage of these models while essentially not compromising the, uh, you know, company's internal information? And especially not the company's customers' information that the customers trust the companies with. <laughs> Absolutely. All right. Thanks so much, Manny. Thank you, Sean.